I'm your host. The goal for this show is to focus on interesting topics or people, social justice issues, and maybe a scandal or two. But always, 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 whatever we talk about, we'll always have a New Haven edge. Uh, in the studio with me today is a friend and scholar who's a New Haven resident and a community advocate. His name is James Foreman. Let me say a little bit about James before we start our conversation. He teaches at Yale Law School, but he is no ordinary egghead. James grew up as a movement baby. His father was a civil rights leader, James Foreman Sr. He went to law school, and shortly after graduating, he joined the Public Defender's Office in Washington, D.C., where for six years he represented some of the district's poorest, most disenfranchised people of color facing the wrath of the criminal justice system. While in D.C., James also co-founded a charter school targeting kids who had either dropped out of school or had previously been arrested. Since moving to New Haven, James started a clinic where he represents young people facing expulsion from school for disciplinary reasons. Last summer, James was one of the faculty members at Yale University who stepped out to support Corey Menefee, an African-American man who had been fired by the university and charged with a felony for breaking a stained glass window depicting slaves picking cotton. The reason James is with us today is to talk about a book he wrote that's just been published and is causing quite a stir, but a good stir, titled Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. The book looks at the role that the black community played in the creation of mass incarceration rates in this country. Just as the road to hell is paved with good intentions, the book tells the story of a generation of influential black leaders and policymakers that tried to do right by their community and ended up making things much worse. Many of these folks that he writes about came into leadership at the end of the civil rights movement, becoming politicians, chiefs of police, judges, and prosecutors at a time when rates of violent crime were rising significantly in the black community. In response to this and to calls from besieged black residents calling for protection, many of these leaders opted for things like increased policing in black communities, mandatory minimum sentences, harsh laws for gun possession, and drug offenses. In the end, sadly and tragically, they too played a role and contributed to the mass incarceration rates that we now have. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Kika. It's really good to have you here. Um, I want to ask you first, what is it that made you uh, want to write this book? Absolutely. And first, I have to say that that introduction that you gave to the book was so beautiful and comprehensive. Um, and, you know, I've done a lot of conversations about this book, but I don't know that anybody's quite captured it in just a few sentences the way you did. Um, so I appreciate that. Um, really, what what brought me to write the book was one thing that has nothing to do with criminal justice and then one thing that has a lot to do with my experience in the criminal system. So the thing that has nothing to do with it is that, you know, I don't know if you're like this. I kind of suspect that you are. We haven't never had this conversation, but I'm the kind of person who, if I go to a movie and there's no, you know, people of color, if there's no African-American characters in the film, somebody says to me at the end of the movie, what did you think? I'm always like, well, where are the, where were the black people? Where are the people of color? And I feel that way about film, I feel that way about theater, I feel that way about art, literature, history, and law. 
And so I knew that I always wanted to write a book that had African-American characters in central roles, not on the sidelines. So then the more specific to the criminal justice system reason is I was a public defender in the 1990s. So there's a lot of stories in this book, um, stories from my own practice. Uh, and one of them involves a young man by the name of Brandon, and I was representing him in juvenile court in Washington, D.C., and he had pled guilty to possession of a firearm and possession of a small amount of marijuana, about $15, $20 worth. And I was asking for him to be sent home. He, I had letters from teachers and counselors uh, attesting to his character. His mom and his grandmother were there in court. And the prosecutor in the case was African-American. Now, Brandon was African-American, as were almost all of my clients. The prosecutor was African-American, and she was asking for him to be locked up. She wanted him to go to Oak Hill, which was D.C.'s juvenile uh, facility. And it was really a terrible place. No functioning school, drugs and violence are rampant, uh, no mental health services, no drug treatment. And the judge who had to make the decision was also African-American. So there he is. He's looking out at these lawyers, both African-American and this young man, a uh, young black man, and he's got to make his decision. And I should say, I took the job because I viewed it as a civil rights challenge of my generation. You know, my parents met in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. My dad was the executive secretary. And I now had opportunities that were unheard of for previous generations of African Americans, right? I clerk on the Supreme Court. I now had this job at the Public Defender's Office. And I knew though, that one in three young black men were under criminal justice supervision. We didn't have the same statistics for black and brown women, but my, my experience showed me that there were huge disparities there. The United States had passed Russia and South Africa by the mid-90s to become the world's largest jailer. So I had taken this work because I saw it as civil rights work. Now, the judge, African-American, as I mentioned, leaned back and looks into Brandon and he says, son, Mr. Foreman has been telling me that you've had a hard life and that you deserve a second chance. Well, let me tell you about hard. Let me tell you about Jim Crow. Let me tell you about segregation. See, the judge had grown up in those years, and he told Brandon what it was like. And then he said, as he was kind of wrapping up, he said, people marched and fought and died for you to be free. Dr. King died for you to be free. And he didn't die for you to be running and gunning and thugging and carrying on and embarrassing your community and embarrassing your family. No, he did not. So I hope Mr. Foreman is right. I hope you do turn it around. But right now, actions have consequences. And your consequence is Oak Hill. And he locked him up. And I thought about the fact that the judge had used the same civil rights history that I had used as my motivation for becoming a public defender, but he had flipped it. He was using it as a form of argument for why Brandon had to pay this ultimate consequence of being locked up. And I thought about the fact that the judge wasn't alone. The city council that had passed the laws that Brandon was being sentenced under, it was a majority black city council. The police force was majority African-American. The police chief was black in D.C. And so I knew at that moment that my experience, to put it mildly, you know, my view about the criminal justice system wasn't universally shared in my own community. And I knew, I felt like I needed to write a book. I, needed, I didn't know it was going to be a book at first. I needed to write something, an article, something, an essay, something that tried to tell the story of how this African-American community and others like it around the country 
but I use D.C. as a lens. But this African-American community and this first generation of elected officials under incredible pressure, as you described, without all the options that they needed at their disposal, they ultimately, often, as you said, with good intentions, they ultimately ended up contributing to this inhumane system that we now have, that we now call mass incarceration. So I wanted to write that story. And it's funny that you talk about um, uh, your observations when you go to movies. I was struck when I finished reading the book that in many ways, this book is a reversal of a Woody Allen movie, that instead of leaving black people out of the picture, your book actually brings black folks smack into the center and you look at what, if any, role they had in the mass incarceration problems that you have now. And it seems to me that the book is really trying to address two questions. What exactly was going on? And how did a city like D.C. that was then known as Chocolate City end up locking away so many of its own? And I guess what my question would be for those in the audience who haven't read the book would be, James, what exactly was going on? Right, right. Well, the first thing... And you hinted at this in your opening, but the first thing is the rising crime and violence that um, was uh, tearing through the community. So, you know, we, most, a lot of people know about crack, but only older people will remember heroin. Heroin was the crack of the 1960s. The murder rate in D.C. tripled in the 1960s. It doubled in most cities around the country. And heroin, for example, which they tested everyone who was entering the D.C. jail in 19, early 1960s, and 3% tested positive for heroin. By 1968, just five years later, it was 45%. You know, that's an epidemic. And, and it wasn't just D.C., it was Cleveland, it was Chicago, it was New York, Los Angeles, Oakland, Atlanta, and smaller cities around the country. And, but it wasn't just the numbers. It was also kind of the pain and suffering. So one of the things that I did was I went back and I found letters that constituents had written to their elected representatives in the 1970s up through into the 1990s. And, what's, and, and the, many members of the D.C. City Council, when they retire, they turn over their archives to various libraries throughout the city. So I, I spent summers reading through these letters. And what leaps off the pages is the pain and anguish that people are feeling. You know, they're writing, they're saying things like, I feel like a prisoner in my own home. I feel like a stranger on my own streets. I can't walk to the store. I can't take my kid to school without passing drug dealers. They're shooting everywhere. You know, what's happened to us? What's happened to us as a people? And remember, these people are writing not long after the civil rights movement. So there had been this moment of, of belief, of sense of possibility and now people are seeing these rising crime rates, these rising addiction rates, and it feels like the world is crumbling around them. So you have that, right? And then the other thing that's going on is you have to think about who is receiving this material, who is reading these letters. You hinted at this as well. This is the first generation of African-American elected officials to come into office after the, rise of, after the fall of formal Jim Crow. There's an 800% increase in African-American elected officials in the 1970s as black people became enfranchised. This generation, many of them were from the South. Some of them had been in the civil rights movement. And all of them remember the centuries and centuries of under-enforcement and under-protection of black lives when the state 
would not respond to black death or or victimization, right? They remembered when when there was a robbery or an assault or a fight in a black community, you didn't call the police. They weren't going to come. And if they did, they were just going to make it worse, right? The, the Southern sheriffs, and not just in the South, who were in cahoots with the Klan and other white supremacists, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a murder if it was a, a dead black person. They just said, well, that's just another dead black person. And they didn't use the words black person. So they remember this history. They've now come into power. And they're bound and determined to do it differently. They're bound and determined to protect black lives. Chapter two of my book, which is set in 1975, chapter two is, is called Black Lives Matter. They didn't use that word, those, that phrase, but that was the impulse. They wanted to protect black lives. Now, the third thing that was going on that's crucial is to understand the constraints that they were under. Because so far you might say, okay, they're trying to respond to crime, and they, they care about crime for the first time. White people didn't care about this in the 30s and 40s. Now they do. But why prosecution? Why police and prosecution, right? Why are those the responses? And this gets to the question of constraints. So these were individuals who they didn't only want law enforcement. They also wanted better jobs better housing, better schools, drug treatment, mental health treatment, fighting racism, fighting segregation. They wanted a Marshall Plan. Many of them, John Conyers, the congressman from Michigan, talked about a Marshall Plan for urban America. And I hear that over and over again in the 70s and 80s. We need a massive investment in fusion of jobs in our communities for lots of reasons, but including to fight crime. But here's the thing. Although this is a story with black characters front and central, any story that's what, about what people of color do in this country also has to be a story about the constraints and the racism and the things that surround them and limit their abilities, right? So they wanted all these things. They wanted what I say is all of the above strategy to fighting crime, but they only got one of the, the above. They only got law enforcement, and that's because... African-Americans never controlled Congress. We didn't control state houses. We controlled cities, so we could deploy more police. We could deploy more prosecutors. But we, by ourselves, didn't have enough political power to create a Marshall Plan for urban America. For that, people of color have always needed allies. They've always needed a white community to feel their pain. And that was never forthcoming. Mm. So your book, I noticed, takes on racism and white supremacy, but it's also quite honest um, in looking at issues of class and colorism in the black community. And it comes up a few times, especially in the chapter um, on uh, policing. And you talk about the uh, police officer who was schooled by a, a D.C. newspaper for speaking out against affirmative action for black police officers and being told by a bunch of elite black folks that he should stick to policing and not opine on uh, affirmative action for police officers. Talk to us a little bit about how you think class and colorism shaped the black community's reactions to crime and incarceration, because I also notice you make a distinction between elite uh, folks in the black community as policymakers and those most affected um, 
by poverty and crime uh, and being the, one, the very ones that are being targeted for harsh incarceration? Absolutely. So, you know, I like the way you asked the question because the first thing I want to say, and I so I will respond to your question and talk about class and talk about colorism, but I do want to say up front, because every time I begin to have this conversation later, somebody says, wait, I heard you talking about class, and are you saying that race and racism aren't important? So I want to say up front that I don't view these things as, I don't view these things as separate. I don't view it I don't, when I start talking about class, that doesn't mean I don't think that race uh, isn't central. Race is central. White supremacy is central. We cannot understand the history of this country, the history of criminal justice system, the history of mass incarceration without understanding the role of racism in that. At the same time, it's not the whole story. And so what I'm trying to do is talk about other things that are also important, that complement and supplement that story, not, not to rebut it. So, so on the question of class, I mean, the first thing we have to be really clear on is that when we talk about mass incarceration, sometimes we use kind of loose language to say, well, it's something that afflicts, you know, the African-American community generally. And there's an element of truth to that because lots of people have a relative, somebody in their family because of segregation, black people, middle, black middle-class people may tend to live closer to communities where crime is highest. So there's a little bit of truth to that. But this is also true. If you are a black person who dropped out of high school, then your chance of going to prison in your lifetime is 10 times higher than a black person who graduated college. That's a huge distinction right there within our community. And we also know, of course, that that difference, whether you drop out of high school or whether you go to college, is also has a lot to do with income and wealth of your family, your family background. Right? It's, here's another statistic that I think is important for people to remember. As terrible as mass incarceration has been, right, we've had an increase of 300,000 people to 2.2 million people. During that period of time, though, the likelihood of going to prison has not increased at all for black people who have gone to college. It's mm, interesting. So going to college and then the economic background that that tends to you mean that you're from, not exclusively, we're talking right in general here. What that means is that the people that were making the laws and enforcing the laws, prosecutors, judges, and and legislators especially, they were not living in the communities that were being the most aggressively and heavily policed. And so, and they weren't going to prison. So there, in a way, you could think about the title, right? Locking up our own. Part of what I'm trying to do is play with this question of our, of our, of we, of who is us. And I'm trying to play with it in multiple ways. I'm trying to say, hey, in the black community, we who have gotten to a position of having some power and some authority, we need to ask ourselves some really hard questions about the extent of our empathy and compassion. Who is us? Are we really representing and defending and advocating for the people in our community who are the least fortunate? Like I describe my own opportunities, and yet at the same time, I know what the high school that I went to, a lot of kids that I went to high school with dropped out. Mm. 
what am, what is my role and my responsibility in both standing by that problem and also trying to remedy it? So that's part of what I'm trying to do, you know, in the book is ask that question, who are we? Have you seen the movie Get Out? You know, I I need to see this tomorrow <laughs> <You have> to. <laughs> because you are you are the second person. I mean, I knew I needed to see it from like Facebook and everybody talking about it anyway. You're the second person though to ask me in an actual like interview setting, have I seen it? And the reason I'm I'll tell you and you can maybe tell me that I I, I haven't seen it only because I'm really don't like like this is going to sound crazy, but I don't like scary, violent movies. Okay. And and I've heard, I know people say, oh, well, it's not really a horror movie. But So I'm going to watch it at some point, though, but I need to watch it when I have, like, fast forward and mute. Like, I can't watch it in a theater. Yeah, well, I... I'm <laughs> so it might be a couple months before I see it. I'm totally with you on the horror part. It's definitely worth watching. And the only reason I went is because uh, your friend Tracy Mears was one of those people who was horrified that I hadn't gone to see the movie. But um, the reason I bring it up is because um, when I was reading your book, I, my reaction in some parts of it was very similar to when, when I was watching the movie Get Out, that I wanted to yell at the characters to get the hell out and stop making such stupid decisions. Um, and I oh, guess, I you know, see. in terms, you know, like, just get out, like, what are you thinking? Just get the hell out of there. But, you know, as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty, and here we are today dealing with huge racially disproportionate incarceration rates that deeply affect people of color, both black and Latino. So my question to you is, how do we get out now? What do you think we need to be doing to get ourselves out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves in? And uniquely, what is the role of black leaders now in trying to change things? Right. So... I, I, let me answer that question. It's a great question. In some ways, you know, it's it's the most important question. A lot of the book is focused on this, telling the story of what's happened, and there is, you know, the last chapter, and also throughout, but especially in the last chapter, I make more explicit kind of the arguments about what we should do. But let me answer that question in two ways. One is just like kind of how to think about the problem. So, So one thing that to me, an argument of the book is that we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that, you know, mass incarceration was something, there was like a moment where we got mass incarceration, right? And of course, it was never like that. There was no vote. There was no moment when the nation, certainly not black and brown communities, got asked, hey, do you want to be the world's largest jailer? And instead, it was built up by a series of small decisions, many of them micro acts, almost invisible, um, to the to the kind of you know to the average person. I mean, one of the people that I write about is a pretty liberal, progressive city council member. He's actually one of the white guys in the book, and he's opposed to the drug war. But yet, when he becomes a city council member and he gets letters from constituents, he forwards those letters to a government agency. And then, when he gets a response from the agency, he writes back to his constituent saying, "Saying, look, you know, I forwarded your letter on." But I notice in the files that. No matter how many letters he got from people saying, you know, there are addicts in front of my business or addicts in front of my house, every single time he forwarded those letters to the police department, never to the Department of Mental Health, right. the Department of Addiction, uh, Addiction Services, to the, apartment, uh, the, 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 the health department. And that little kind of decision, right, to think about 
the problem of someone addicted to drugs on the street as a police problem, as opposed to a public health problem, is something that has infected us all, right? Even people like this character in the book, who's very progressive and very liberal and not a law and order type guy. So one of the things I'm trying to get us to notice are all of the small, almost invisible ways that we collectively have helped to either build the system or allow it to be built in our names and with our dollars. And I think we're going to have to unbuild it, destroy it, deconstruct it, reduce it, make it more humane in the same way. It's going to be with a series of very small individual steps. Some of them will be through policy and politics, and some of them will be outside of that. So in terms of policy and politics, the most important thing there's a lot of stuff we could do, but probably the two most important things are, on the criminal justice side, make sure that we have progressive prosecutors that are prosecuting in whatever community that we're in. Most prosecutors are elected, and in this last election, this past November, there were actually progressive prosecutors who were elected around the country for the first time in my history. In my, since I've been working on these issues, it has never been the case that you could run for prosecutor and say mass incarceration is a problem, the war on drugs is a problem, we need to divert people instead of locking them up. But last November, prosecutors in Colorado, Alabama, Texas, Florida, Alabama, Chicago, uh, all ran on those kind of agendas and won. So we have to look around in our community and ask, you know, who is doing the prosecution? And if they're not somebody who has that kind of reform-minded approach, then we need to launch a political movement to replace them. Now, but let's move beyond policy, right? Because it isn't just the criminal justice system itself that is going to be the answer. One of the huge things that I think about is employment especially employment for returning citizens, people that are either have a criminal conviction and or who are coming back from prison. And I don't even think we really notice how many obstacles we place. There's a, the, the Ford Foundation. Went, they do amazing work on criminal justice reform worldwide. And they went and did, did a presentation at a prison in New York. They told all about their work. And when they were all done, one of the guys who was locked up raised his hand and said, this is amazing. I just have one question. When I get out, could I get hired at the Ford Foundation? <laughs> and there was silence in the room because they didn't know the answer and they suspected it was no. Mm. And they were right. To their credit, though, they went back and they scrubbed their HR policies from top to bottom to make sure that they changed them so that they could and would hire people with criminal records. And so what I tell people is, what's your employer's policies on hiring people with criminal records? And go beyond taking away the exclusions. How about creating paid internships where you go out and reach into the population that's coming back from prison or jail or the population that got convicted of a crime and never got incarcerated? Give them opportunities for paid internships, and then if people prove themselves, they can get hired full-time. Churches are the, you know, religious institutions. I ask a similar question. You know, we have 900,000 people coming back from prison and jail every year. We have 340,000 churches, synagogues, temples, mosques, religious institutions in this country. That means if each one of our religious communities adopted three people, help them 
get housing, get a job, said, we will be your home base. We will be the people who will be the social network that you have not had before. We'll help you get an ID. You know, you get back from prison, the only ID you have is a prison ID, which, which nobody will accept. It costs anywhere between $20 and $50 to get an ID. People say, well, it's only $20, but if you don't have any money, $20 is a million dollars, right? If you have zero. So there are things that we could do in these spaces as employees, as employers, universities, the same question. Does your university have a policy where the third question on the application is, have you ever been arrested? Which scares people from even, which sends a message to people that if the answer is yes, I'm not even going to fill out this application. Versus other schools, which only ask that question at the very end of the process, after they've learned much more about you as a person. So now they might learn this fact, they have to learn this fact, but they learn it as part of a holistic understanding of who you are. So these are some of the things that I'm sort of pushing us to think about, even outside the realm of policy and politics that could make our society more welcoming, more merciful. Mm -hmm. You have a young son, Amika, um, and as I think about the changes that have taken place, it's interesting, you, you um, were not afraid to call out some of the elites that were very much behind the pro-incarceration bandwagon, people that today surprise us, uh, Eric Holder, Jesse Jackson, um, Johnny Cochran, um, and now we, it feels like a, a Sessions uh, is trying to, to set us back, but it feels like we have made progress and people are realizing that mass incarceration is not the problem to the solution. And as you think about your your young son, what do you wish for young black men of his generation? How do you want the world to be different for him and for his peers? Yeah, you know, let me, I, I want to mention kind of one, this is a way of beginning to answer that question, but I want to mention kind of one other thing as an example of things that we can do, which mm -hmm. I think connects to the world that I want to try to create. So I've been going around telling people what what we can do to make our system more humane and more more empathetic and more merciful. And then last year, I asked myself that question, what am I doing in my work? And last year, I took a, a my class on race, class, and punishment, which I normally teach at Yale, but I taught it last year at in Man Manson Youth Institute in Cheshire. And I had 10 students in the class who were incarcerated there at Manson and 10 students who were from the law school, all learning in a seminar setting together. And it was an amazing, transformative experience for me. I, I was trained in a program called Inside Out, and I tell everybody who now teaches at a university that they should go and do this. They should do this training. They should teach this class. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be criminal justice. It could be any topic, art, music, history, you name it. And what I is, got, what I does inside them, out do? do? What's the program about? Inside out trains professors who want to teach their classes in prison in a setting where you have half the class is incarcerated men and women and half the class are your university students. Okay. It trains you in how to do that, right? Because there are specific pedagogical approaches that you need to use. You can't just show up and teach the same way that you might have taught before. So they do one-week training. Um, they do five or six a year around the country. Um, anybody can go on their website, insideout.org, and learn more about them and sign up for a training. It's an amazing program. And one, when I got the evaluations this year, one of the students wrote 
this is one of the inside students, one of the young men who was incarcerated at Manson, and he said, you know, I really appreciated the law and policy that you taught us, but really what was most meaningful to me was that for two hours a week, I sat around a, uh, in a circle and people acted like I was smart and had important things to say, that like I had an intellect. Mm. And that's, that hasn't happened to me before in school. And I thought I was so thrilled that he had had that opportunity, but of course it was so tragic that he was now, you know, 21, saying that it hadn't happened to him before. Um, another young man wrote that what he loved about the class was that for two hours a week, he felt like he wasn't in prison. And those kind of, those reactions and reflections from the students at Manson really made me think that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to teach this class again next year. I don't know for sure if it's going to be at Manson. I want to teach it somewhere in the Connecticut system. I'm still kind of working on where that's going to be. But to me, the way that this connects to your question about a Mecca is that I want a Mecca to, and all of our, to all children, but especially our children of color who haven't had historically had these same opportunities. I want them to be raised in a community where they are surrounded by love and support and compassion and connections where when they interact with the state, whether it's through, for example, the police department or the school system, right? When they interact with the state, they don't get the kind of messages that the guys that I taught at Manson get. They don't get the message that you are less than, you are inferior, you will amount to nothing. You don't have ideas that matter. No, they'll get the opposite messages. You are important. You are a stakeholder. You have value. This country is for you and it is for yours. And of course, as parents, and you know this, you know, as parents of children of color, we always straddle two things, right? We're always teaching our children that racism is permanent and that their struggles are never ending. And at the same time, we're teaching them that if they work hard and they're steady and they're persevere, right, and they do their homework and all of that, that they can find a place in society. So what I want to do is I want to have, I want to have society organized in such a way that children of color and poor children of whatever color can thrive. That's beautiful. I want to ask you one last question before we get into the personal and close out the show. And that's that I was really, I, I think I emailed you about this. I, um, when I got your book, I remember taking a deep breath before I opened it, thinking that it was going to be, you know, no disrespect to uh, law school professors, but I thought it was going to be a heavily intellectual, very dense book that was going to be really hard to read. Um, but you're a friend and I wanted, you know, I did criminal justice work for a long time and I really wanted to dig into it. And I was just blown away by how it's written. It's really well written. It's full of um, stories about clients, real life uh, individuals struggling, trying to do the best that they can with what they have. Um, and it actually was really hard to put down. So my question for you is... Um, what led you to want to write a book in this way? Well, partially, honestly, I appreciate you saying that. It was, it was your reaction that I wanted. 
So I wanted to write a book that, you know, academics thought was important, right? So I didn't want to write something that was dismissed in my own academic community as, you know, fluff. Mm -hmm. So it was important for me to have ideas and make an argument. Um, But I wanted to write, if I could, in a way that would be appealing and engaging to a wide audience. You know, there's a lot of stories in the book. There's stories of my clients, of their lives, of their struggles, of my work as a public defender. Um, in some ways, the book is almost like a love letter to public defenders. So I was talking to somebody on a panel, a judge, and he said, you know, I like how you were critical of everybody, but you were, you know, honest and, 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 and you weren't harsh, even though you would criticize people. And when, after he said that, I thought, you know, there is one group of people that gets a pretty good, that, <laughs> that gets pretty well represented and that's public, public defenders, defenders you yes. know, because that was my, that was my position, right? I, I'm, I was writing about myself. Um, and although I make some mistakes in the book, you know, I always have kind of, you know, naturally I'm biased. So I, my heart's always in the right place when I'm, when I'm, when I'm telling these stories. So I wanted to write in a way because I didn't want this to just be dismissed as an academic book. I wanted a reader to pick it up. And that's one of the reasons why it opens with that story, the story that I was telling earlier about Brandon, because I want a reader to pick it up and immediately know, okay, this is somebody who's writing using regular language, not a lot of jargon, not a lot of, you know, academic words. And that's just telling a story, but along the way, say saying something serious and powerful. Right. And so that was my I, I just wanted to try to reach as broad of an audience as I could. And I thought this was a way to do it. Well, thank you for uh, doing that. Thank you for telling the truth um, in such a gentle but honest way. It's, you know, your book was um, tragic and beautifully written and really accessible. And um, I will email you to ask you what happened to Miss Dozier and Brandon and Miss um, Willis, because one of the things that I was left uh, with when you told their stories is, well, what happened? <laughs> you know, what happened to them? Are you still in touch with them? What what's happened with their lives? But we are running out of time, um, and as is uh, the tradition in my show, uh, it's time to get personal. So here goes, James. Who is your hero or hero? Wow. Hmm. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Ella Baker. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Say Ella Baker. Do, oh, do you want me to explain why or just tell you the name? I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know that. Ella Baker, but why of all the heroes you picked Ella Baker? You know, because, because of the role that Ella Baker played in the very origins of the civil rights movement. She was the person, you know, I mentioned that my parents met in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, but Ella Baker was the person back when students were first organizing in the South, they did the boycotts, uh, and they had a conference at Shaw University in North Carolina. They came together. It was the first time that there had been all these student protests around the South, but this was the first time coming together. And there were some older folks, some ministers, and there were some folks from the, some of the, the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is Martin Luther King's organization. Mm-hmm. And they wanted this group of students to become the student wing 
of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And Ella Baker told the students that, she, that they should form their own organization, that they needed their own voice, that they should, that they were a new generation with a new set of ideals and approaches and tactics. And they should not allow themselves to be kind of hamstrung by an older generation's vision of what civil rights was supposed to look like. And that decision that she made was, I think, crucial to develop the development of the civil rights movement. And I think about it myself all the time now, because now I've moved to that point where I am in the next generation up, right? I'm not in the student generation anymore, but I work at a university so I, and I talk to a lot of young people and I want them to take their own lead and not to listen to people that say, well, do it our way. Yeah. Thank you. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? To read minds. Oh, wow. <laughs> and finally, Sally's Peppies or Modern Pizza? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Peppies because, because Modern is the one that I normally pick up from because it's closest and easiest. So Peppies is a little more special. And Sally's I can never get into. Huh. Folks, that brings us to the end of our show. Uh, thank you for listening. And James, thank you for uh, being on the show. This was a lot of fun and you were very easy to interview. Um, to folks who've been listening, if you have not already done so, you need to go this afternoon to the bookstore and pick up a copy of James Foreman's book, Locking Up Our Own Crime and Punishment in Black America. As I said earlier, the book is really accessible, really easy to read and very hard to put down. Until the next one, here is wishing you many days of sunshine and lots of justice. Thank you.